الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدينهم سبلنا سبحان ربك رب العزه عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم One of the most majestic events in the history of all of man is the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the angel Jibreel alayhi salam to teach the companions their deen. Everyone is aware of this famous incident in which sahaba were sitting with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi salam and all of a sudden there appeared this man who who no one could recognize but at the same time had no signs of travel his clothing was absolutely white this person then came to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and sat directly in front of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and began to ask questions and a series of questions was asked and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave answers and each time the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave answers the questioner said you're correct or you've spoken the truth and sahaba were just completely taken aback number 1 this person no one knows this person but at the same time they have no signs of travel so where are they coming from Number 2 they have the audacity to cut the whole crowd and sit right in front of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam with sahaba wouldn't even have the audacity to look at the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam I mean just think of it that way prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did uh, sorry sahaba did not have the uh himma to look at the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam directly let alone cross the sahaba come sit in front of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam then on top of that the person began asking questions and then in the most awkward way as they're asking questions they're saying you're correct what kind of question is that to ask the question the answer is given and then you say you've spoken the truth you're correct so for many reasons companions the companions were just completely in shock now the individual asks a few questions everyone knows those questions very simply what is islam what is iman what is ihsan what are the signs of the end of time there is a few few simple questions and at the very end this individual then leaves after the individual leaves then the prophet sallallahu asks umar radhiyallahu an do you know who that was do you know who that was now again that's also very interesting by the way sahaba didn't ask who that was right they maintained their adab in the most extreme of circumstances 
In fact, in one narration, it comes that two days later, the Prophet ﷺ asked Umar radiallahu do you know who that was? So, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal, the type of adab that the Sahaba used to exhibit. Anyway, eventually, the Prophet ﷺ asked Umar radiallahu do you know who that was? And Umar radiallahu of course, didn't provide an answer, but turned the question back to the Prophet ﷺ, who then said that this was the angel Jibreel, he came to teach you your deen. So, otherwise stated, Sahaba were taught by an angel. Now, just think about that for a moment. You know, an angel, the angel who's bringing revelation, who's brought revelation to all of the prophets before, this same angel was sent to teach the companions their deen. Now, that you know, in and of itself is just absolutely phenomenal. I don't think, aside from a handful of circumstances, I don't think you can find a greater event in human history. Prophetic history, okay, let's put that away for a moment. But just, we can, we can agree that this is one of the top events of human history. That an angel was sent from the heavens to teach the companions their deen. It shows you the sincerity and the adab of the companions. And it shows you the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that an angel would be sent to basically summate the deen. Now, what's so interesting is that, I mean, think about it. This interaction is occurring over five minutes, seven minutes, 15 minutes, can't be more than that. It's a handful of minutes. It's not some uh, two-day-long seminar. <laughs> We like to do two-day-long seminars. <laughs> it's not some two-day-long seminar. I mean, you would argue that if the angel's coming, send them for a week <laughs> and have registration. <laughs> but no, subhanAllah, two, two, a handful of minutes. Handful of minutes. And in these handful of minutes, you have to assume that there's utmost efficiency. So it's important to recognize what were the questions and what were the answers because they essentially are providing foundation for all of religion until the end of time. Anyway, I mean, you can literally have long, long, lengthy conversations about this, but one of the things to appreciate is that in this conversation, the Prophet ﷺ was asked, what is Islam? And of course, the standard five pillars were elucidated. That, you know, Islam is prayer, fasting, hajj, Zakah, etc. So from this we learn that Islam is essentially built upon five very, very basic pillars. And we know that separately because the Prophet said, Buni al-Islam al khams that Islam has been built upon five. So we have these five pillars. And of course these five pillars, they begin with the Shahada, which is really just a testament of faith and then they proceed into Salah, Salam, Zakah, Hajj. One of the things to appreciate, however, is that these pillars, they form the foundation of deen, they don't form the end of deen. Meaning, they're the beginning. They're the first step. I think that's that. Meaning they're the beginning. They're not 
the last step. They're the first step. So, for example, when a person is talking about how to construct their deen, which is really what the goal of life is, right? All of life is basically how do you construct this deen and create this edifice in our lives, which is called Islam. So when a person is trying to construct this deen, you automatically have, immediately you can say, you immediately have focal points that need to be established to allow us to be able to create the canopy of Islam in our lives. And that's really important because, you know, uh, like in anything, if you don't know where to start, then you never end up at the end. Everything needs a beginning. If you don't know where to begin, it's very hard to get to the end. So here, the beauty, one of the beauties of this under principle of our deen, that there are five pillars and that Islam is these five things, is that it gives us very, very concrete guidelines as to how we can establish a deen in our lives. So we have five pillars. Now, the scholars, they take this one step further. And they say that the of the five pillars, shahada is shahada, so put that aside for a minute, that's the entry point into Islam. So of the remaining five pillars, so we can say four, of the four pillars, two of them are the primordial pillars. Primordial pillars basically means, well, okay, let me take a step back. These pillars, by the way, these pillars are the same pillars that were present in every version of Islam from the beginning of time. Now you can stop me and say, what do you mean every version of Islam? So Islam came in editions, right? There was the first edition, then the second edition, then the third edition, then there's what's called the final edition. Each prophet was given Islam from one, from one per perspective. And it was some rudimentary form of Islam. But ultimately, Islam came to its perfection upon the final edition, upon the final messenger, which the Prophet is then presenting and teaching to us. It's coming to its fruition. Meaning each messenger came to renew and update the edition based on the circumstances of the time. So, Every, every, if you look at these pillars, these pillars are what we call constitutive. Constitutive means that they're expressed throughout all of religion. For example, salah, it's expressed everywhere. Every community had salah. Fasting, it's expressed everywhere. Every community had fasting. Zakah, expressed charity, expressed everywhere. Every community had it. Now, they had it in their own form, in their own way. It comes to its ultimate evolution, its ultimate pinnacle in the deen Islam, the, the deen Islam, quote-unquote, but it's present before as well. So the scholars, they say that of these four pillars, two of them are primordial. Primordial means like you establish them first and everything else is downhill. They call them the Quranic pillars. The scholars of tafsir, they call it the Quranic pillars. And those two are salah and zakat. This comes all over the place in the Qur'an. These two concepts, establishing of the salah and paying the zakah, these two concepts, they're intertwined. They're like joined at the hip. Joined at the hip. 
And the scholars say that the fact that the Qur'an is continuously, repeatedly reminding and commanding and emphasizing salah and zakah, that you can see these as the Qur'anic pillars of faith. Like not even pillars of Islam, pillars of faith. Even Isa alayhi salam in the cradle, وَأَوْصَانِي بِالسَّلَاةِ وَالزَّكَاةِ مَا دُمْتُ I may be misquoting it, but I think that's what it is. Anyway, the principle is there. That, and I have, been, I have been enjoined with salah and zakah so long as I live. So this, uh, these, this salah and zakah are like the, like the Quranic pillars of faith. And of course, they come to ultimate expression in Islam through the sunnah and the message of the Prophet So when we're working on fulfilling our trying to establish this canopy of Islam in our lives, this canopy of Islam in our families, this canopy of Islam in our, uh, in our hearts, it always is based on first these two. These are, the first, these are the first two that have to be emphasized. So what does it mean to establish salah? Establish salah is a very lengthy conversation, but what it means is that, notice it doesn't just say pray salah, but it says to establish salah. Right? وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ وَآتُ zakah. So, and establish the salah and pay the zakat. So, establishing the salah not only means that we pray the salah ourselves individually, but it means that we create the mechanisms that are conducive to establishing the salah both for our families and within the community as a whole. Which means the jama'ah, which means establishing the masajid, which means creating the circumstances that are conducive for people to be able to pray together, reminding and enjoying the, enjoying the prayer amongst one another, etc., and the same with the zakah. The zakah has a framework that needs to be present. And it's not just about paying it, but it's also about establishing that framework. And all this background that I'm giving right here is really to just continue on this conversation that we started yesterday, which is the notion, the importance of the idea that um, these five pillars are the essence of our deen, that they need to be established, and that the establishing of these five pillars requires some effort on our parts. So for example, let me just say, like, uh, look at the emphasis that we placed on establishing salah, which is wonderful within the community. Look how much emphasis we place on building masajid, how much emphasis we place on reminding one another to come to the masjid for prayer, how much emphasis we place on printing timetables, how much emphasis we place on ensuring that there's someone to lead the salah, that the microphone works, that the speakers work, that there's ample parking, that we create an environment that's conducive to everyone to be able to offer salah, that all the masajid, they offer enough space, that the masajid have shoe racks, that the masajid have washrooms. I mean, there's so many things that go into the establishing of salah. And think about how much time and energy we put into establishing the salah. Similarly, let's talk about Hajj. Hajj is a pillar of our deen. And look how much energy we put into Hajj. There's Hajj groups, there's Hajj manuals, there's Hajj seminars, there's uh, people advertising for Hajj, there's people planning for Hajj, there's people thinking about Hajj. I mean, there's so much infrastructure that goes into establishing the Hajj. Look at Ramadan. Ramadan is very similar. Look how much energy people take to establish Ramadan. People are ordering dates. People are 
printing, uh, you know, booklets on things to do during Ramadan. Everyone is excited. Everyone's coming to the masajid. Everybody is um, re reminding one another of the beneficial things of our deen. And this is all positive, by the way. But then when it comes to zakah, you see that you don't see, that you're, it feels like that that piece is lacking, you know, in this day and age. Like, you know, zakah is like, uh, okay, how quickly can I find a website to just uh, discharge my zakah and almost get it off my head, na'udhu billah. Um, but that's not the intent of zakah. Meaning if zakah is a pillar not only of Islam, but a pillar of faith, right? And in fact, it's one of the primordial Quranic pillars that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Then the argument can be made that the same effort that we make towards salah, hajj, psalm, that that same effort should be made towards zakah. And in fact, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ and shortly thereafter, there was. There was a whole infrastructure. Uh, there was these amineen. Amineen means the workers. You know, the Quran refers to them as well. The workers of zakah. The workers of zakah are those people that were appointed by the Prophet ﷺ or the khulafa to represent the poor to go out and collect the zakah from those who were wealthy. So there was a whole infrastructure that was present. And the books, of the, if you look at hadith, the books of zakah that are, are discussing what the collectors had to do and the Prophet ﷺ reminding people to be kind to the collectors, to be generous to the collectors. The Prophet ﷺ reminding individuals that it should be collected from the rich and distributed amongst the poor. And this whole emphasis amongst the early uh, khulafa that don't that distribute it there, don't send it back to the central treasury. Um, anyway, there's a long, lengthy discussion. But the point remains that so much emphasis was placed on zakah at that time. And, you know, historically, the Islamic world, for the last 1,300, let's say 1,300 and minus 100 years, from today minus 100 years, 1,350 years roughly, 1,325 years roughly, for that entire time, uh, the central authority would be essentially res responsible or at least, you can say, assisting in the establishment of zakah and the distribution of zakah. But when that central authority fell, which you can say from one perspective, not completely, but from one perspective would be the downfall of the Khilafah, then it became the responsibility of the community to carry all that weight. Right? So the community took the responsibility to build masajid to establish masajid. Now, many places in the world you go, and they have, they have centralized mechanisms still to some degree or another. But certainly in the West, like there's no government that's going to build you a masjid. The community has to build their own masajid. There's no government that's going to send you a letter reminding you for hajj and telling you to sign up. The community has to take that responsibility. There's no uh, you know, announcement that's going to come about Ramadan. The community takes that responsibility. So in the same way, this responsibility of zakah also falls upon the shoulders of the community. And by the way, zakah and sadaqah, which we talked a little bit about yesterday, sadaqah, these are all extensions of one another, meaning zakah is the pillar and then sadaqah is the extension. Just like the farad is the pillar and then the sunnah is the extension when it comes to salah. All right? Or just like hajj is the pillar, but then umrah is the extension when it comes to umrah. All right? Or just like fasting is the pillar in the month of Ramadan, but then fasting outside of Ramadan on Mondays and Thursdays or on the white nights, that's an extension of the pillar. So in the same way, zakah is the pillar, and the extension is sadaqah. Now, 
Because the community hasn't taken this responsibility upon ourselves, because we as a community have failed in this regard, um, what's ended up happening is that we lose the opportunities to even go beyond zakah. We're struggling with zakah, let alone creating the circumstances that would allow us to be able to be abundant in our sadaqah, which is creating, which is creating an opportunity that is lost upon us. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because yesterday we had this lengthy discussion, and I said that, you know, this idea that like one of the big problems that we face is that we don't necessarily appreciate who is actually in need. But I can tell you that within the community, there are people in need. But we wouldn't necessarily appreciate it. We don't necessarily see it. There are people that are hungry. There are people that can't make their ends meet. There are people that can't pay rent. There are people that are working two and three jobs and, uh, you know, driving all night trying to uh, uh, collect some dollars to be able to pay off their expenses. They do exist. But the problem is that we haven't taken the necessary time to be able to identify them. And then the sort of like the, you know, the fuel for the fire, or you could say even one step worse, is that if someone were to come and ask, then we would say, what's wrong with that person? They're asking, don't you know in Islam you're not supposed to ask? Right? Because the, the deen discourages from asking. So then we would also be, then use that, unfortunately, as an excuse as to why we shouldn't be abundant in our charity. There are people in need. The reason we don't identify them is because we haven't made the effort to create the infrastructure to identify them. What that means is that that responsibility falls on us. No central authority is going to come and tell anyone, which basically means that every one of us has the responsibility as being part of a community to go out and ask the question how people are doing, to seek and to identify the opportunities to be able to share the blessings that Allah has given us, knowing that without being able to share these blessings, we will not be able to take full benefit from the Qur'an and we will not be able to ex fully express our iman. Because as I mentioned yesterday, this is a characteristic, right? From what we have provided them, they spend. This is a characteristic of the people who are described as the ones who take guidance from the book. So if we want to take guidance from the book, which basically means that we both take the outward guidance, and we also get the spiritual guidance, which basically means that we are able to appreciate the magnificence of the Qur'an, then it's going to require that we spend, spend, spend the same way that we spend on ourselves. Which I mentioned yesterday, if you want to know how we spend on ourselves, just look at a credit card statement. $5 here, $25 there, $500 there, $800 there, $2 there. It's continuous. There's a continuous flow of transactions Fulfilling our needs on a daily basis. And the spending for the, in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the exact same way. It's a continuous charity. Charity is not something that you just write a big check once a year. Or, you know, it's uh, interestingly people like to say, you know, I'm going to give in Ramadan. You ask why you're going to give in Ramadan because I want more reward. But don't you think people are starving outside of Ramadan too? Like, is it really about my reward? That I'm only going to give in Ramadan, I'm only going to calculate how much sadaqah I'm going to give in Ramadan. It's just, is it, is it so much about me that I'm even greedy for myself about the reward? I've created this paradigm in my head that I'm only going to give when I get the most reward. It doesn't matter how hungry you are. I mean, it, it doesn't sound a little absurd. Uh, at the time of the Prophet, this wasn't some zakah was collected in Ramadan system. 
Because collectors were constantly going out, they, weren't give, they didn't give people the choice, uh, oh, you want to wait till Ramadan, okay, we'll come back in two months. No, there was a need. People have, people have needs 12 months of the year. They don't have needs one month of the year. We have a need one month of the year. We have a need to receive the maximum reward, but that's not the, that doesn't uh, mirror the needs of the population. People are continuously in need. So we should be continuously giving. People are, we have a continuous responsibility to spend, like I said, you know, consistently. I mean, nobody in this room only spends in the month of Ramadan in their family. I mean, nobody says, oh, you can buy groceries in Ramadan. <laughs> Let's wait two months, Ramadan is coming, then we'll, we'll buy groceries. Or you want furniture, we'll wait till Ramadan. No, no, people buy and spend and continuously are spending whenever they have a need. So in the same way, we have a responsibility to continuously spend, as I mentioned yesterday, but part of that responsibility means that we have to go out and we have to identify those people in need. We have to make every effort that we can to go and identify those people in need because we actually are more in need than the people in need. That's a very important thing to appreciate. We are more in need than the people in need because the people in need are in need of fulfilling their necessities, which is enormous. But we're in need of creating a relationship with Allah, which cannot occur unless we assist those people who need to fulfill their necessities. So a very important feature of our sadaqah is that it's on us to make the effort to go out and to seek individuals and to find the circumstances where people are in need. And they do exist. I can tell you for certain they exist. But we just haven't looked hard enough. And I would also argue that if we can't do that as individuals, that as a community, we should appoint people that can do that. Just like nobody expects you to open the masjid every day, but we support the masajid so that they can open the masjid every day. So in the same way, if we're not able to individually go out and seek these people, then at least as a community, we should appoint certain people within the community and support them to be able to go out and find these people so that all of us have the opportunity to be able to serve. Because without it, we'll be the ones that, were, that are left empty. Because we need those opportunities to be able to establish our own iman, to be able to establish our own faith. And we'll talk more about that in detail, inshallah, once we get to those verses. But anyway, the Qur'an is telling us that a characteristic of the people who take benefit from the book are those who spend mimma razaqanahum yumfiqun. From what we have sustained them with or provided them with, they spend continuously. We can say they continuously spend. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who are able to establish these basic pillars of our deen. And may He make us amongst those who are able to find those in need and who have the concern to be able to identify and seek out those in need. Wa akhirat wa'ana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.